Hey everyone, I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I've had a really good week again. I had some, like, something really fun that happened the other day. If you take a look at my social media pages, I posted a couple of pictures of me releasing a monarch. They're so large and gorgeous and they have the most spindly little legs. This monarch got caught in an office. We were locking up and I noticed it walking on the wrong side of the glass, just kind of walking up the blinds there. I went back in and was able to gently capture it in my hands and release it. And the thing that was really amazing about it were several things, actually. One was how strong this butterfly was. They seemed so fragile and just light, and I was worried I was going to crush it. And it just really wanted to get out, and it was just pushing with all of its might. The other thing was it's long spindly legs and it actually is so big that it has some weight to it. I could actually feel that weight in my hands and once I released it, it seemed almost like it flew a mile up into the sky. I'm sure it didn't go quite that high, but it went way up there. So of course, because I'm a nerd, I looked up what is the highest that a monarch butterfly has ever been seen and it was 11,000 feet. So two miles is 10,560 feet. So this is over two miles up in the air. So it was just amazing. I mean, it just flew straight up and kept flying and I guess looking for that nectar from way up there, just joyful. So the other thing that I did is one of my friends gave me some lemons and I ended up making limoncello. It's really easy to make. All you have to do is get one of those wide, double-bladed vegetable peelers and gently peel that rind off, just the golden part, because you don't want the pith. The pith actually is there to transport nutrients from the rind to the lemon and all of that sort of good stuff. Anyway, you don't want that pith because it's very bitter. Then you take all of those rinds. I think I had about 20 lemons and I ended up making about two gallons of limoncello. You throw them into whatever container you're using and over the top, you pour 750 milliliters of either 100 proof vodka or Everclear. And the thing is that you can't find 100 proof vodka just anywhere. I went to all the markets And everybody has this very reasonable 40 proof. So I ended up going to one of those big box liquor stores. The goal of making this limoncello is that after about four weeks of steeping, it's going to end up somewhere around 33 proof. And I'm assuming that the peels do absorb a lot of that alcohol. So That's fermenting right now. It takes about four weeks and then you strain it and you add sugar to it. And of course, you have all of these lemons left over that no longer have the rind and so are susceptible to going bad really fast. And we ended up making a ton of lemonade. My favorite lemonade is Simple Sunshine. It's one and a half cups of lemon juice with two thirds of a cup of sugar and two quarts of water. That's it. And then if you want to turn it into pink lemonade, you just get a bunch of 
pomegranate seeds and you throw them into one of those lemon squeezers and just squeeze the juice out into your lemonade and you've got pink lemonade. You can macerate a bunch of strawberries or you can do blueberries and throw those in there for either strawberry or blueberry lemonade. And those are going to tinge the water either pink or over towards the lavender side. And then my favorite thing to do super fancy, is to get some lavender sprigs, fresh lavender sprigs. And I've got this amazing plant that is spreading. I have like all these little volunteers or little babies, whatever. I hope that they cover up the entire planter because I love lavender so much. It just is the most wonderful scent in the world. And so you get several sprigs, make sure you wash off any aphids or anything like that. Make sure they're super clean and you throw them into your lemonade and just let it steep like you would with tea. And you just have to be careful because there's some lavender out there that doesn't smell good. So whatever the lavender smells like, that's what your lemonade is going to taste like. So if it doesn't smell good, don't put it in your lemonade. But I actually started with just one gallon of limoncello. And I realized that a lot of the rinds were sticking out over the top and they really should be covered. So I went back to the big box store and picked up another bottle of Everclear and took care of that problem. So now I've got the two gallons. But these big box stores are kind of a new thing in California. But they're a thing in other states and have all of these funny stories about trying to get alcohol in other states because wherever you grow up, that's the normalized perception of the rest of the world, right? So, you know, the saying that you can take the girl out of Los Angeles, but you can't take Los Angeles out of the girl or insert whatever location in the world in place of Los Angeles for yourself. It's true. And so I go somewhere like Arkansas with that Los Angeles perspective. I mean, clearly to my eyes, it's a different place. Clearly to my ears, it's a different place because I'm listening to a different accent. And everything is different. Yet at the same time, I'm filtering it through my Los Angeles upbringing. And this is true of anybody anywhere in the world. You can't see the world differently than where you've been. So every time that you go somewhere new, you're adding to your understanding of the world and how you interact with it. And it's just really interesting how going to another place brings a mindfulness to the way that you look at the world, um, reframing your vision of the world. So some years ago, we went to Arkansas, and we were in a dry county, or we were right next to a dry county. And there was a restaurant that said bar and grill. We went in there, ordered a couple of burgers and a couple of beers, and the server asked us for our IDs. So I pulled out my driver's license, assuming that I was being carded. And she said, Oh, no, honey, I need your drinking license. We just froze a drinking license. What's that? And where do you get it? And apparently, they kept tabs in this area of Arkansas on how much alcohol was sold, and you had to have a license luckily, you could purchase them 
at the restaurant. And if you purchase the license, it was the same price as your first drink. So you purchase the license and you get a beer. But that was the first time that I found out that there were these differences in the way that different states operated in terms of liquor laws. Okay, I feel like I should interject here that I am not a huge drinker simply because I'm telling you all of these alcohol stories. But I did quit drinking regularly about six months ago. Um, I wasn't drinking a lot before that. But the issue is that alcohol makes me sweat. And that is not very ladylike. Um, But on top of that, it was waking me up at night, which it's known to do. And it was either because of the alcohol itself, or because I was sweating like crazy, or both. And even if I have just a half a glass of wine, or a full glass of wine, the following day, I've got a headache, I notice that my performance is not up to par. I just don't feel all that great. It's got, you know, it's known to have a depressive quality, and it certainly affects me that way. And then the calories. I mean, there were just so many things about it that I thought, I'm going to stop drinking. And I found these zero alcohol spirits that tastes pretty good to me. There is actually a learning curve in terms of flavor with them because they're not equivalent in flavor. For example, my favorite drink, my favorite hard spirit is a gin and tonic with lots of lime. So I got a zero alcohol gin that is not the equivalent of a fully leaded gin. It's kind of like when somebody has a veggie burger and expects it to taste like a hamburger. It's never going to because they're not the same exact thing. They're completely different categories. There's not quite as much of a disparity with spirits as there is with food. There's also a tequila out there that doesn't have quite as great of a learning curve as the gin does. It's a closer analog to real tequila. So it's just nice to have these replacements for when you do want to have a drink, but you don't want to have all of the effects that go along with it. So that takes me to the next story, which is when we went to Bisbee, just before Cameron went to boot camp, we decided to do one final road trip as a family. And It was to Bisbee, Arizona, which is in the southeast area of Arizona in the Mule Mountains. It's a little bit cooler than a lot of other places in Arizona, which was great because we drove into Tempe the first night and the car was probably around 63 degrees, somewhere around there with the air conditioner on. And I opened the door and stepped out into 119 degree weather. I thought I was going to spontaneously combust. I think I went into shock for a minute because it was so dang hot. I couldn't believe it. And I was really hoping the next day when we left to go to Bisbee that it wasn't going to be nearly as hot. But on the way there, we saw a sign off to the side of the road that said Tombstone. And we were like, oh my gosh, we have to stop there, which was really cool. We got to walk on historic ground. We also watched a replica of the gunfight at the OK Corral. And 
the coolest thing was that right before that, all of the lawmen were walking around. So we got a picture with the Earp brothers, Wyatt and Morgan and Virgil Earp and Doc Holliday and even the McGlory, some of the McGlory Clanton gang guys. And of course, these are actors. So they all got along very stern looks on their faces. It was pretty cool. I'll put a picture up on the socials. And then we get into Bisbee, which as I said, is in the Mule Mountains and everything changed. It was 78 degrees there. It's an old copper mining community, whimsical, artsy, so charming. And one of the things that I like to do when I get to a place is I don't want to have to worry about getting a glass of wine or finding where I need to get a glass of wine. So I normally go and buy a bottle of wine and just keep it in the hotel room. And I thought I could do that in Bisbee. Silly me. I found out that there was a store about two and a half miles away from the hotel. And it was pretty early in the day. Sophie and I decided to take a walk, which was charming. We were on an upper street and there were stairs that went down between residences and these blooming gardens. And it was just beautiful to take you down to the lower street that this store was on. We walk in, there's just a tiny little hole in the wall place. Took a little look around, you know, as you would, because we're tourists and that's, we were doing the touristy thing. Picked up a couple of things. We decided that maybe it would be nice to have some ice cream because one of the cool things was that with the room, you could purchase this extra package, which included a tour of the copper mine, which I mentioned on I don't know, the second or the third episode, and my claustrophobia that turned out to be a complete disaster. But it also included either a jug of the Bisbee Brewing Company's beer, or a jug of their root beer. And of course, we decided to get the root beer. It was a lot cooler, but it was humid. There were big clouds in the sky. There were glorious electrical storms going on on the horizon. I mean, what a show. It was really nice. And we had a veranda. So I thought it would be nice to have our root beer float and a glass of wine on the porch while we watch the sky. And I did find the wine. It was underneath a layer of dust that was probably about an inch thick. And I thought, oh, nobody buys wine here. But then I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm getting something really special, something that's been aging for a long time. So we gathered all of our purchases and took them to the counter. And there was this woman there who was austere and stern looking. And I'm telling you, if this was the late 1600s in Salem, Massachusetts, there would have been a hearing. She just had a very cynical, suspicious look about her. She tapped the counter without speaking to point my attention to this little sign that was written in very shaky writing. It was all capitals and exclamation points. And it said, no debit cards or credit cards accepted cash only. So I'm sitting there because I never carry cash with me. This is the age of electronic bank transfers. So I took a moment to get over my extreme disappointment. And I asked her where the nearest ATM was. 
And she said, you'll have to go back to town for that. And I thought, okay. Okay, fine. We still have time for this. So I looked at how long it was going to be before she closed up, which was about an hour. And I thought we could do five miles in an hour. So we walked back into town. And the thing with Bisbee is that it is not that easy to find an ATM. It's not that easy to find a market. Or maybe I passed up a bunch of them and they just weren't obvious enough. But that was my experience. I finally found an ATM and we walk back to this store and the sun had fallen below the shadow line and there was this wonderful breeze that had kicked up. And, you know, by the time we got back to the store, we were in a really great mood. And there's this woman standing there with this derisive, almost maniacal look on her face. And she points down to the open sign. And then she takes that sign and she flips it around to closed. And her grin gets bigger and her eyes gleam at me. Yeah, that was a really, oh, that rendered me speechless for a moment. And then I took a deep breath. And at that point, it became principle that I was going to get this bottle of wine. It didn't matter what else I did. I was going to get a bottle of wine. So we walk back into town, which just happened to be where our hotel was anyway. So we had to go back that way. And we were passing the Mexican restaurant where we had eaten at earlier that day. And I thought, I'm just going to go in here and see if I could beg and buy a bottle of wine to go. So I found the server who had helped me and I very briefly told her my predicament. And she disappeared for a minute, came back and she said that her manager had agreed to sell me one of their bottles of wine to go, but that she had to open it, pour a little bit out, I had to drink it and then she could cork it and charge me out. You know that image you get in your mind whenever you think what it will be like if you hit the lottery? Just imagine that 10 times over. (laughs) Sold! Pour that wine and I will take it back to my hotel room. And I did. And I sat out there sipping my glass of wine and watching that electrical storm and really enjoying my vacation. I mean, that was a hard-earned one. I deserved it. And I just have to wonder if that's the reason why there was so much dust on those bottles. Maybe she did that to everybody who tried to go and buy a bottle of wine there. I don't know, but it was a pretty crazy experience. And I've actually got one more story, if you can believe it. I actually have quite a few, but this one's one of the more notable stories. And it's from uh, when we went to Oklahoma Cameron was graduating from basic combat training at Fort Sill. So we went for the graduation. And one of the things that I do whenever I go anywhere is tack on a couple of extra days so that I could explore the place because who knows when is the next time that I'm going to get through there. Fort Sill borders the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. It's like 60,000 acres of savanna and mountains and rivers and waterfalls. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And we were there in November. So it was in the high 30s. And the air was crisp and overcast. The trees were turning colors. So there were these vibrant 
crimsons and golds and the rich green of the fir trees. And we saw wild turkeys and white-tailed deer. And um, they have Texas longhorn, wild Texas longhorn cattle that roam through there. And we started to look for the bisons. We couldn't find them, but I remember driving through there and this thought crossed my mind. This is the most beautiful place I have ever seen. I distinctly remember that there was this granite cliff wall and on it was growing all of these different colors of lichen. It was just this chartreuse and a crimson and orange and gold and white. And they were just spidering their way across there in this beautiful pattern. And I had to stop and I thought, are you sure this is the most beautiful place you've ever been at? Because I have been to a lot of places. And the answer was yes, it was it was gorgeous. And so we were looking for the American bison, which we're probably going, it is in the 30s and we're going to go hide somewhere warm because we couldn't find them at all. So there's a story behind these bison. It's estimated that prior to the 1900s, there were about 50 million bison, 50 million American bison roaming across America. And by the early 1900s, that number had dropped to a dismal thousand, which is shocking and sobering. That was due to mass slaughter, sports hunting, and settlements that encroached on the uh, American bison territory. And something really wonderful happened because they would have gone extinct, except that William T. Hornady had an idea. He was an ecologist, a conservationist, and an environmentalist. He collaborated with then-President Theodore Roosevelt to form the American Bison Society. And at the time, those thousand bison that remained in North America were a combination of wild and captive bison. So they took 15 bison from what is now the Bronx Zoo in New York, put them on a train and sent them to the Wichita Mountains. And today, there are over half a million bison in North America, simply because of this program that was started 100 years ago. So I wanted to see these bison and I never got the opportunity to see them. But one of the things about this refuge is that it was established to protect wildlife species that are in grave danger of extinction and to restore those species that have been eliminated from the area. So they've reintroduced, get this, because I know a lot of people are going to laugh at this, but they've reintroduced the prairie dog. It being from California, we don't have prairie dogs here, but we do have gophers. And I think that they're kind of similar. So I'm driving down the road looking for this herd of bison. And of those nearly half a million bison that are in North America, they have a herd that is somewhere around 700. Um, I see this sign to the side of the road that says, caution, prairie dog crossing. 
And I'm like, oh, how cute. And all of a sudden, zip, 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 zip. There's these little prairie dogs just running across the road. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they're totally serious. And there was this turnout where you could park and on both sides of the road were these big fields and you could just see these little prairie dogs running around. They're like popping out of their little burrows and just running circles and kicking dust up into the air and they're barking at each other from little hills that they made. Literally the cutest things that I've ever seen in my entire life. They're so adorable. I just think it's great that they did that. And there's also a drinking story that goes with Oklahoma. So like I said, I don't want to have to worry about getting a glass of wine somewhere because I want to drink it in my hotel room. I mean, I like when I go somewhere in the evening, I want to be able to sit down and relax. So Sophie and I went to the CVS that was down the street from our hotel and we're walking around And I don't see anything that looks like there's even a drop of alcohol in that place. We go back up to the counter and I ask the lady if they, you know, where the wine is. And she says, oh, no, honey, we don't sell wine here. I think maybe you need to go to the Walmart. And so we get over to this Walmart and it was the biggest Walmart that I have ever seen in my entire life. You know, we have Walmarts out here in L.A., but this was enormous. So we walk in, end up heading down to the back, back, back end of this gigantic warehouse place. And I see beer and I'm thinking, oh, that's promising. So we look around all over the place for wine and can't find it. They sell beer, but no wine or any other kind of alcohol. So I stopped and I asked a lady and she wasn't really sure. She said she was going to get somebody else to help. And so the second person comes and the second person gets a third person and then a fourth and a fifth. And now I'm surrounded by Walmart staff who are looking at me quizzically, like they're trying to figure out why a woman would bring her child into a store to purchase alcohol. And it was really awkward. And I was starting to just think, I'm going to abandon this wild goose chase because they don't have wine in Oklahoma, period. And then one of the ladies says, oh, you know, you need to go over to whatever street it was. And it's about three blocks down and you'll see the liquor store there. You just hang a right and you'll see the liquor store there. And I said, but what's the name of the street? She goes, I don't remember the name of the street, but you'll see a big Chinese food place and you can't miss it. It says liquor really big. And I'm thinking, all right, this is going to be the last shot. If I don't find it, I'm just not going to have wine and that's fine. So we drive down there. It's very dark and it's really cold. And we get on the street that's kind of like the red light district. And there's newspapers flying around and it just doesn't look very clean. And I do see the giant liquor store sign. So I pull in and Sophie and I get out and we get to the front door and there's a sign there that says, no one under 21 allowed. And these are some of the details that differ from Los Angeles to a place like Oklahoma. In Los Angeles, you can take children. There's no age limit for going into a liquor store. They just can't buy liquor. In Oklahoma, it's just off limits. So Sophie goes, Mom, just go in and get your wine. I'm going to be fine. And just so you know, she was 18 at this time. So it wasn't like I had a little kid with me. Want to clarify that. Um, So I walked in. This liquor store was 
desolate. And there were two guys behind the counter that kind of looked at me like they didn't know if I was going to rob the place or I was actually going to buy something or I was going to go and proposition them. And I was in no mood for drama at this point. But I was wearing my squeaky boots. And this was a cavernous, echoey place. And my boots are going... believe this because normally you wouldn't hear all of that squeaking if you're walking around anywhere else there's just too much noise but it was so quiet in there you could hear a pin drop so I asked them where the wine is and they point all the way to the back so I say thank you squeak my way over to where the wine is. And by this time, one of the guys has kind of like straightened up and puffed his chest down. And he's like following me down because he's going to give me all of his sommelier knowledge. By this point, you know, they figured out I'm actually a customer because who else squeaks that much with that much attitude, right? And I'm sure they figured out that was from LA too. (laughs) We're good at those things here. Like, Yes, my boots are squeaking, and I'm not going to let that take away from me owning this moment. So I walk back there, and he sees me looking at the wine, and I already knew what I wanted in my mind. He starts to give me all of this sommelier information, and I just reached out and grabbed the bottle, and I go, taking this one, and squeaked my way back up to the register. And you can just see this crestfallen look on this guy's face. He... His shoulders slumped over. He didn't get to share with me all of the stuff about tannins and aging and and wooden barrel versus steel metal barrels and, I don't know, whatever, corks versus screw tops. I knew what I wanted. Went up. I probably paid $20 more for that bottle of wine than I would have here in California in Los Angeles. It was a wine that I recognized that I had purchased before. So I know I was paying a lot more. And I had my one glass of wine. And the next day we went to Cameron's graduation, there was an army band playing out front. And I mean, they were cutting it up. They were really good. It was nice to listen to that because it was super cold. And it took your mind off of that because they were just having such a great time. I, I love that the ceremony itself was great. We went and had a really great lunch found, you know, one of the fancier restaurants in the area. And then he came back to the hotel room and he was so sick, my poor baby. I know he's gonna get mad that I said that. But he was really sick. His eyes were sunken. He was hacking up a lung. I mean, he was in poor shape. He had probably lost 15 pounds and it was not anything that a mother would like to see. And he just crashed on the bed. So um, he slept for a while and then he wakes up and we're all just sitting there chatting. And the thing was that there was a convention going on in the hotel that we were at. Not only was it full because there were families who had come to see their soldiers graduate, But there was also a convention going on. And I had a feeling from some of the things that I had seen that it had something to do or some of the vendors anyway, because there were vendors there. Some of the vendors were Native American um, or had Native American products that they were selling. 
So we're sitting in the room, just chatting. And while we're catching up, I can hear this drumming. It's kind of like this primitive, rustic sound. And I finally tell the kids to be quiet because I think there's a performance going on and I wanted to hear it. And we're quiet for a minute. And all of a sudden we realize that the performance was going on next door and the headboard was banging against our wall. Oh, Oklahoma, the memories. But it was a very pretty place. I would recommend it if you've never gone there. Well, those are some of my drinking stories, um, or those are some of my stories of running into cultural differences. And it happens everywhere that you go. So it's always nice to have a little bit of information ahead of time to be flexible and to laugh at the predicaments that we run into because life is funny. Um, one of the other things that I did this week before I get into the conversation, the in the company of friends conversation that I had with my friend Stephanie, is I came across this article of this woman who goes to flea markets and purchases old photographs and artifacts. And she does a lot of research on them through genealogy and ancestry records to reconnect living relatives with these old relics. And these stories come across from time to time, and they're so fascinating. I think that they've been coming across my news feeds a lot more frequently since the pandemic, because it's something that people took up as a way of filling that quiet quarantine time. It is a very interesting pursuit, especially when the pursuit relates to you. And so this is going to take me into my conversation with my friend Stephanie Michelle, who did some research and came across some fascinating information. She and I are part of a writer's room for an upcoming series. It's called Dark Country. It is still in the writing stage. It's a Western, but it goes beyond Western. It encompasses the United States as it was in the mid-1800s, which means that there is stories of slaves in this series as well. And while we were doing some research and discussing one of the characters and what would happen in that situation, Stephanie mentioned the slave history in her family. And she's from Kentucky. She's from Louisville, Kentucky, a place where the legacy of slavery is much more prominent than it is here in California. So while we were doing research, she understood it much more keenly on a variety of levels than we did. And she mentioned a few things, including remembering going to the grocery store with her granny, who would be her great grandmother, and running into relatives of the white family that had owned her family. And it gave me chills. I felt like the ghosts of history were speaking through Stephanie. And I felt like it was a really important story to share because it was so powerful. This is a story that has been handed down 
from generation to generation. It is a spoken story. It's the story of her history. She decided she wanted to go more in depth and verify some of these dates, some of the names, some of the information. And what happened in that journey that she took is astounding. So I want to share the story of Stephanie Michelle, who is a writer, a screenwriter, a producer, a filmmaker, a newsmaker. She's the CEO of Nightwalk Productions and a multi-talented force. She's hardworking, upbeat, bubbly, energetic, super thoughtful, dedicated, funny. And I am so lucky that I get to call her my friend. So without further ado, I present to you Stephanie Michelle and our In the Company of Friends conversation. I'm really like, I've been super excited to do this episode with you and, you know, just really talk. Yes, yes. Well, I did want to start with Mm -hmm. talking about a couple of other things that you have going. So I know you're a producer, Nightwalk Productions, the filmmaking, the writing, the screenwriter, the producer, that is Stephanie Michelle. Okay. Um, <laughs> actually, it's a good it's a good time, actually, because during the end of the um, the year and like going into the new year, you know, I hate to say New Year's resolutions because, you know, everybody says something at the beginning of the year. But you right. know, my mother's birthday is December 30th. And around her birthday, I feel like her energy more. And it kind of calls me to rethink where I'm at, what I'm doing because of time. You know, she she died younger than mm-hmm. she should have. You know, so I, it always calls me to think about what I want next in my life when actually, you know, it's also like two days before New Year's Eve. So so I always like relook at my life at that point. And during the pandemic, except for uh, being a part of an upcoming Western series and a couple of projects during the pandemic, I, I laid pretty low. And and I look back at Nightwalk at the website that I made before the pandemic. And I look at my goals for myself back then. And then I realized it wasn't really me anymore. And so right now I'm kind of going through this stage of like getting rid of a lot. I mean, like if you look at my website, it's just like so much of like previous work that I've done that doesn't apply so much to me now. It's loud and it's busy. And so I'm going back and personally like getting rid of some extra weight that's like a that that's that's tiring. It's tiring to keep up with it. It's like my first short film, I beat myself and beat myself trying to fix it because I refused to move on to anything else until I, you know, there were so many rookie mistakes in that. There were so many things that I did wrong just jumping into filmmaking, you know, right. from writing to filmmaking. And um and it's so expensive and and exhausting to figure things after you film it. You know, it's always best to make the best production that you can make as you're filming it because it's cheaper, you know, to edit. And so like, that's one big thing I'm going to do this year. And uh, I'm either going to get it right or let it go. On one hand, it'll disappoint some people. On the other hand, it'll kind of free people from maybe something being shown that doesn't do them justice and myself as well, you know? So that remains to be seen is I I still am working on that. And I I need to look at it honestly, you know, that's something I'm working on presently. 
and I'm part of a Western series. We're working on the palette for a Western series. Great writing group that if I don't know if you want me to say that you're a part of that, a big one of the uh, main writers on this. It comes from um, somebody I really admire, their writing, and them as a creator of this world, uh, Connor um, Severson. He's a just amazing writer, an amazing uh, creator. And, uh, you know, I'm humbled that while it's his project, you know, it's like I am uh, a producer on it. And because he's doing the Three Mile LLC, I'm, I'm really honored, you know, and I'm honored to be a part of the team. And it's a great group of writers and, you know, still like, you know, you've actually, you're the, you are the main writer. You've written more than anyone beyond Connor on this. And it's like, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a great team and a great group of people. And so I'm excited mm. for some things that will be coming out this year, you know, with, uh, with our country. So, and I have a documentary that, uh, that, uh, that actually goes into, um, I don't want to talk about too much because it's pretty much like in the beginning stages. But I have a documentary, the Western series, and, uh, you know, a couple of other things that are, again, that are like really early stages to talk about. Um, I have a project that I'm inspired to work on. I'm not sure if I'll do it this year, but I, I should add I'm doing writing for uh, uh, Cavi Productions. And so those are two things, but there, I mean, like Nightwalk Productions is involved in both. We're getting started on that and deciding, putting the budget together. How exciting. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. of positive changes. Great horizon ahead for you here. Thank that's, you. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to see how some of these projects are going to turn out. And I'm super excited that I get to write with you. I think you are yes. a very talented writer that brings a lot of your history into your writing, especially with this particular Western that we're working on. I think Connor is such a visionary and we have such a great writing team. It's such a diverse writing room that we have. And, you know, I think, uh, I think it's shown like really diverse writing rooms really work well because we all we can have a voice and opinions for so many different types of characters and, and situations. And it's like, a, it, it, fa- it fits reality more, you know, it's Absolutely. Like here in Southern California, you know, it matches. That's wonderful. Yeah. We do need all of those various perspectives, all of our various histories, our knowledge, you know, just what we understand of that time period, because we're, currently in the 1800s. So definitely nobody has survived from that time period, but there's so much history and just being able to put this historical fiction, it's also going beyond just your standard Western with the various characters that we have in there, you know, and of course there are uh, your typical, you know, your usual suspects, so to speak, from that time period, because they actually did exist in that time period, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. But then we've expanded to other characters who were also part of that time period, but are not written about very much and who were also involved. So it expands beyond that and not just the West, but also across the United States in the 1800s, what was going on in very diverse cast of characters in terms of we have you know the typical western characters that you see in film in other film that's out there and then we have the slavery component because that was Mm -hmm. 
definitely going on at that time. And that's kind of how this episode came about is that we were talking about the research that we had done and how we wanted to portray one of the characters who is a slave. And you chimed in, you know, we, I have to, I have to preface this with everybody that is writing on this project at the moment is from Southern California or from California, except for Les, who's from Pennsylvania, and except for Stephanie. But I remember Steph sitting next to me and you said, well, we need to show a deference to, I I believe that's what it was, a deference to the white characters. This slave who is taken in uh, and escapes a slave bound south, she's taken in by northerners. She still has to have these characteristics. She can't just be the badass that we're trying to make her be when she's around white people because she was born a slave and she had been in a really bad situation for a long time. And you mentioned some of the legacy of slavery that remained where you grew up in Kentucky. And when you mentioned that you remember going to the supermarket with your grandmother. Well, actually, it was like I used to go to the store with my great-grandmother, and and my great-grandmother did tell me a lot about our history because, you know, her grandmother and mother were like in the from the 1800s. I believe she was born like maybe even like 1902 or, you know, something like that. So she just made it over to the 1900s. But like uh, she was the one who carried stories of the past. She grew up hearing things from family members that were alive back then that still had the stories of slavery, you know, close to their heart. It was just like their grandmother and great grandmother's stories. So I was lucky that my great grandmother told me these stories. And it's like, I believe where the grocery store came, thing came into it, where my great grandmother was little, they would, you know, my great 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 grandfather i'll leave his last name out and just because i haven't got permission from the other family as of now but uh his name was leon and uh he was white young man uh and that my family was a slave family to his family and so they would see them in the store after slavery is over this is early 1900s now they're actually mid 1900s and um, they would see them in the store and then they would want to know, well, how's this person doing? How's that person? Do you have any pictures? How are they doing in school? Like, you know, there was even though like it wasn't said out loud, you know, you are my blood and um, asking about, you know, your kids and grandkids and wanting to know more about them. They're not saying that out loud as in blood, but just in a curiosity. But it's like an unknown fact in the conversation. And so, uh, again, like uh, that did go on until the mid 1900s. So there was, you know, a connection there. Whether you look at it as bad or good, there was that connection there between them and that care and concern to, or that maybe even just that curiosity to know what happened with the rest. You know, I mean, as I tell more of the story, as we get into that, 
uh, it will it'll it'll actually come to light better because I feel like I'm saying it wrong right now now that I found out some things that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think at that moment when you were talking about that because we were sitting right next to each other and you brought in this completely unknown perspective to me and most everybody that was sitting at that table. Um, we're so far removed from it. We didn't have a connection with slavery as definitely as close as you did, you know, and my family came here just months before I was born. So I didn't have any connection. It gave me goosebumps to listen to you. I felt like the ghosts of history were speaking through you. And it also made me realize how it's only been a blink of time since slavery and its effects continue to pervade society to this day. And I remember you said that when you're at the market, say you're going to get yes. some mustard. Yeah, I've tried or, to or wh- get out of that. It's an instinct. It's an instinct. Mm-hmm. It's like, even though like I grew up in the 70s, and I actually grew up three years out here in California, but we went back. It's just like something that like, it really is embedded in you because uh, it like, I, I mean, it just carries on from generation to generation that that certain reverence or that certain of like, let me put my head down a little bit. And I know that sounds horrible, but it's like, serious. like if I'm at Costco and I'm getting mustard on my hot dog and then a white woman is there and I was just like a second before her, I'll tend to like automatically almost pull back and let her go first, you know? And I don't think in my head, well, she's white, so she should go first. I don't think that at all. It's just an instinct to pull back a little bit. And then like, and I I catch myself on it, you know, I mean, over the years I've worked through that, you know, from living in California so long. And I realized that like whoever was closest to it gets to go first, unless of course it's an old woman and, you know, she can barely walk. Then of course I want her to go first. But outside that, I try to just like take my place when it's my place without that instinct to think I need to step back in the shadows a little bit till the more important people are finishing doing what they're doing. I mean, it's sad that that's in me and I don't, you know, it's like, it, it is something that's going away the more I get older, you know, and, I, and sometimes like on a, on a side note, I think that's sometimes where people misunderstand black women, that black women anger thing. It's like, people are like, well, black women can be so angry and bitter and they'll snap their head off if you bump into their cart at the shop at the, at the mall or something. And it's like, you know, I think that maybe I could be wrong. You know, some people get paid me for saying this, but I think that that vibe of that black woman anger comes from at some point in their line, they realize that feeling and and then went the opposite direction with it, you know? And it's like, so sometimes they can come off, or I should say less, I say us and black, but can come off as harsh and, Mm -hmm. and stuff. And it's not so much that it's just that like for myself right now, and like, and for these women, probably at a younger age than me, they're maybe a little bit more, I don't know, smarter and are in touch. When you feel that it, you, get, you go through a stage of anger for a while. And some people hold on to that longer than others. But there is a sense of anger. It makes me angry that I have that within myself. And I try not to project that on the person who's next to me just trying to get mustard, too, because not, you know what I mean? It's a different time period. And I can't let my emotions 
live off of a time period of the past. But you know, right? But yeah. But on a side note, that's just that's that's a whole nother podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it certainly shines some light on that issue. You know, it gives a, a new perspective on it. Oh, so and for I black do appreciate women too, that. not just our character, but for black women in general, it's like not just. Like, you know, like the character that we have in our story is like, it's not so much even just white people, but it's also men because, you know, like all women have faced over generations, had to fight for the right to vote, to to get their own credit card without their husband's permission. That was not that long ago either. You know, it's like, yeah, women That's have had true. to fight to be where they're at, you know, so, but when you, when you're a black woman, not only are you dealing with the race thing, you're also dealing with the men keeping you down, holding you back thing too. And so again, I think that what adds to that whole thing of having to like just come off as like, I'm strong. Like, you know, don't mess with me. I'm strong or I'm going to make sure I'm first. And so again, I'll let that subject rest, but there is something to that to explore. Absolutely. Yeah. There's multiple levels of oppression that result in that reaction that do need to be explored. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we wanted to talk about this exciting journey that you've been on to find your family history. Yes. Well, in the, in the meeting, I told you guys that, you know, I was a descendant of a slave owner's son. And uh, we talked about that and, and it kind of made me feel a connection for one reason. You know, I'm not going to tell the story, but I felt a little connection to a character in dark country because of that. So that being said, it's like I have already done like the DNA test. Uh, I was exploring more, trying to get to know my father and his side of the family. And, you know, my mother's side of the family, I knew my my cousins and I knew like history so far back. And I, I knew a lot of our family history because of my great grandmother, but I never was really curious so much to know exacts about slave owners family, the white family, because that's something that is frowned upon. You know, it's like, uh, why would you want to know about someone that, that raped and hurt, you know, your family back in the day? And it's like, it was kind of weird. I think the reason I had a curiosity is that my granny, sometimes my granny, that's my great grandmother. Sometimes she would talk about like the family, like tell like details and stuff, like things I didn't even share in the, in the writer's room, but she would tell me about their history. You know, sometimes it's like, a, like she was a beer drinker, not, not a lot, but she'd have a couple of beers on Saturday evening with her show and stuff. Uh, as I became older, when I came over there, I'd have a beer with her. And then, then she'd be like, yeah, that's the German in you. And I used to think, I never really thought about it as a young person, but later when I would talk to other black friends and black family members, they were almost like repulsed that she would say something like that. And I thought it was strange too, but I thought everybody's different. They, uh, you know, they take stuff in differently. Maybe that's a way to accept what happened is to just say, Hey, what is that culture? Like what is German culture like, you know, as opposed to just being angry about it, that would happen. And it got really weird. And so we're actually working on dark country. And at the same time, you know, going back over my DNA results and getting to know my family from my father's side, it's like I said, you know something, I'm going to explore that. Actually, actually, I take that back. What really made me explore it was you, because you told me that you wanted to talk about this, you know, Mm -hmm. and you wanted me to be a guest. And I said, you know something, everything that I talk about I'm piecing together what my great grandmother told me. You know, I don't mm-hmm. have like dates 
fact, address is this, that I don't have all that together. And if I come on a podcast, I want to have facts backing up everything that my granny told me. And so I took the time out to really trace that family. But it's like I knew that uh, I need I needed to come on here with answers. You know, it's like uh, I wanted to have facts. And so I started looking into it. And of course, like, you know, once things go back, you can't really find out too much. It's hard to get uh, the records. It's hard to pull them up. And especially like uh, back in slave records, they would just have the family name and it would just say like slave one, female 15, slave two, like, you know, so then like you have no idea who their names are, you know, so then like you're really going um, up against the wall trying to get pull up records. I had found records back to like uh, the 1940s, 1930s and 1920s census that kind of really helped lock my great great grandmother. And before that, for her parents, it just said unknown on both sides. And I said, there it is. It is her. And, you know, because she was a product of rape and slavery, you know, they just left unknown on everything, you know, her father and mother. You know, I kind of reached a point to where, like, it was just saying unknown, unknown, known. And I was like, you know something? I'm going to research the name more and look into it more to tie things in. And then as I was doing that, I realized wait a minute, these years don't match. I mean, because slavery ended in 1865 and my great, great grandmother, she was born like uh, 18, late 1800s. So I was like her mid to late 1800s. So she would have born, been born a few years after slavery. You know, again, I'm guessing on that part, you know, at the time. And so it's like, I couldn't figure out. I did know my, my granny told me that my family did stay on with the family after slavery. They stayed on with them and worked for them for pay. And so, which gave me an idea that like, well, I guess they must've all got along pretty good or else they wouldn't have stayed on with them working for them. So I did know that. And so then I said, well, maybe so for some families, slavery didn't end. You know, for some families, like, even though the law said slavery end, ended, it continued and rape continued and, and, and the horrors continued because the family didn't let them go or, or they were so used to living that that way that uh, didn't know how else to live. So it was like, it was just, it was just really strange. But there was like, again, there's, I noticed things were strange, but then I, I thought, well, maybe it was actually not her mother. But it was her great, 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 her her great, great, great grandmother. So that would make the years match. So I go online and look up the last name. And then lo and behold, there's a whole website about the last name. And it's a, a young member of the family that has put a lot of time and dedication into uh, studying the genealogy of his family his name and everybody within that family, you know? So it's like, uh, I looked on there and I saw pictures. I found a picture of a Leon, but the, but the dates were wrong. And I was like, man, is that like a family name or something, you know? And I kept trying to study all of the stuff that he put together, trying to piece it together to match my family. And I saw something on there that tripped me out too. It was like my granny, when I was little, she used to tell me that our family knew the family that hung out with the Hatfields, uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know, 
And then when I was little, I was just, I don't know, I didn't pay attention to it. I thought maybe she's just, I wasn't sure whether to believe it or not. I mean, I thought that was far-fetched. I heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys, but I was thinking, how in the world would our family know them, you know? And <laughs> so I didn't think anything about it. But then one of the things on his website is he showed that the Hatfields were, um, he, one of the Hatfields was close with the family and traveled with them. Whoa, this is the right family. I'm, and I was like, I got like, you know, cold chills and I was like, this is them. And I said, you know something, I'm going to reach out and send him an email to his website, explain, you know, how I believe our family is connected and see if he can help me in some way. And so I sent him an email and he wrote me back later that evening. And then he was like a super positive and upbeat. And he was like, wow. He was like, he said, I never even thought about like uh, researching slavery connections and the slave family that was attached to our family. You know, he said, I never even thought about that. So he was like really super excited about it more so from a point of he loves doing that type of research. And this is, you know, more family, you know, I believe we both wrote each other Sunday night. We've both been doing like some research and stuff. He started studying some stuff and he was like, you know, Stephanie, the dates don't match the Leon on my website doesn't um, the years are wrong and I said I know that's why I was thinking it was a family name like maybe he was named after a great-great-grandfather and he said well he said you know there is some connections there there's some questions about some people in our family that just kind of disappeared he said so let me do some more research and so he was researching on his end and I was thinking about things and then I don't know all of a sudden it hit me wait a minute my granny never actually said it was during slavery day. She just told me that her her grandfather was that man was Leon. So our great grandfather. And it's like, so I was like, well, wait a minute. She she never said that it was during slavery. I started thinking like, what if this wasn't during slavery? Like, what if this was just like two people hooking up? It was consensual or something, you know? And then I'm really tripping out because like my whole life, I've always told people about like, oh, yes, like I have a slavery story in my family, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God, what if I was wrong? What if I read too much in between the lines of what she had told me? You know, I just assumed, you know, and, and ran with that. And so I started doing a lot more research. I, I was able to get back into like the early 1900s and late 1800s a little bit more so in the 1900s about like what towns they were in. I did a whole lot of research and sent it to him Monday evening, but I'm not sure where he's at to be honest. It's like, I just, wherever he was, I emailed him like pretty late here Monday night. And then I had like, I sent him copies and pictures of census reports and addresses. I sent that to him. And then like literally not even five minutes after I sent that to him, it was probably, I don't know, 10 or 11 at night. He emailed me back. He said, we've got a gem here. You know, he said, like, I'm doing the same research that you're researching on your family the same years. And it's all leading to the same places. And so the next day he wrote me a long email and he said, we definitely have a gem here. He said, you're not going to believe this. And he said, but the addresses you gave me where they lived at in the eight, late 1800s and early 1900s my family lived right next door to them. He said wow. they stayed together. So even after slavery ended, those two families stayed together. 
you know, for years and years and years, you know, working together, being neighbors. So it was like, it was just like really weird. And it's like, uh, you know, I had mentioned to him that I started feeling like I was wrong, that maybe it could have been consensual. Maybe they were in love. Maybe they were just hooking up. And I said, but somebody in the two families, I, I had to have been consensual because that's why my great grandmother was actually kind of proud a little bit of certain German things, you know, like she had certain German recipes she would make. But I figured that's because mm -hmm. we live in Louisville, which has a high German population, you know, so mm -hmm. I figured it was just a local thing. But, you know, uh, she talked about Dirchland and she talked about all this stuff and it almost seemed with pride, but I thought maybe she's just weird. But now it made sense that maybe this wasn't such a bad story, like a, like a story of rape, you know? And so, um, he said, he said, I'll be right back. He said, I'm going to do some more research because it's, it, it gets sketchy going back further. But we knew that it wasn't rape at this point. We knew that like the two families lived side by side, you know, through slavery, after slavery and into the 1900s, they were next door neighbors, you know, and they lived on the same lot, you know, literally right next door to each other. And it's like, so he wrote me back again. Monday, uh, Monday afternoon when I was there and he traced everything back because he's, he has a, a genealogy website. He's really good at this, but he traced back. He found, he found my, my, my great grandmother's. I get, I sometimes apologize if I get mixed up with the great, great, greats. I sometimes I get it turned around a little bit, but he, he had the great, my great, great grandmother's, uh, name, which I was never able to to find on everything that says unknown for both parents. And that so, is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like he 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 sent me pictures. I have pictures of all of this stuff, you know, with with the census, with the 1910 census report, and some and some like uh, the plot, who owned the plot, like the lands that they lived on next to each other. He sent me like uh, information to back up everything, and it turns out that there was an. Evelyn, and I can't recall her last name now, that would have been the daughter, our second generation down from the slavery days. They live next door to them at the same time that, yes, they have a James Leon. They, he's living, they live next door to each other. Now, at that time when they lived next door to each other, Evelyn had four children, and then three of them would not have been the right age for it to be the person to have a child with Leon. But it's like he researched one of them would have been the perfect age. And in fact, they were both the they were both 20. They were both 20 years old. So they were both the same age. They lived next door to each other. Their, they, the families grew up together and were neighbors and for generations had, you know, been connected. Her name was July. And, uh, and then he did find something to show July as the mother of my, my great grandmother, there's so many different ways that she shows up in census reports, but he did like find something to show that Evelyn was in fact her grandmother. They lived in the same house, which showed that she was July's daughter by how they had the listings of who was in the household at the time, which this changed everything. We both were like really flipping out. This is a, this is either a love story or a really cool hookup story. We don't know which one it was, but it was consensual and they were neighbors. Sadly, uh, Leon died at 29. My great-great-grandmother was his only child. He never got married. 
So that meant that, you know, the July was his person. Uh, she did marry and she had uh, one son with uh, the person she married. And then we found records tying my great great grandmother with him, the son that she shows on record. But sadly, she also died. She died a few, like just like two or three years after him. So they both, she died in her early 30s. He died at 29. But um, so, yeah, so we're both just blown away. And I went on my DNA test and just typed in the name because there's two spellings of it. So I typed it in both ways. And I have like 13 relatives with that name and connected to that name, blood, blood related. And I asked him about that, I guess, well, my cousin, I asked him about that. And then he said that back in the day, that family, they were really hell bent on only keeping their family, that family, they believed in strength in that family name. And actually Leon's parents were cousins. And they did that a lot within their family is they had cousins got together to keep the blood, just that family name. And then that being said, Considering how much I have of that name in my blood, he is looking because we do believe there's more to the story. We do believe that there may be something further back in slavery days that maybe could be that type of story that I thought it was. And uh, so right now, as we speak, you know, he's actually tracing back further because he wants to see what he's found on my family and compare it to like the slave reports, you know, like how many and what age came in, because we have a feeling that there's more than just that one connection in our family, or he has a feeling from what he's doing, but he said, I don't want to say too much on it yet. He said, let me do some more research. And that was the last time I talked to him. So that was Tuesday night. And then he sent me a lot of stuff for me to look up and I told him I'd do it this weekend and we touch base again. So that's where everything is. Wow, that is such an amazing story. If it wasn't for you, no, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, a very, very, very minor part. Um, I think that your bravery, the courage of sending that email out to the person that you're working with was so courageous because it could mm-hmm. have resulted in so many scenarios and you ended up with the best possible response from someone and it's opened up a whole, I wouldn't even say a whole chapter. This is like a whole new book in right in your, of your past and your history. It's incredible. Well, thank you. I keep, I think about, you know, like the last few nights and stuff and just often I think about Leon in July and I think about like how their lives must have been like, you know, sneaking to see each other. And, you know, and again, I don't know if there was love and romance there, if it was just a hookup. But like I said, it was a mutual thing. And it now makes sense why my granny was proud of her German blood because it came from a place of something good, not bad, you know. But the two of them are so deep in my heart and they, and they both died young. And uh, and I'm trying to find out how they both died. It's like something about their story. I want to share it with the world in some way yet but it just hasn't hit me well this is a start right here but yeah there's going to be more to come of leon and july i just don't know what and when yet Mm -hmm. and you know the the writer in me wants to the 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 modern person in me wants to romanticize july's name because it's it's just so fanciful and charming but the truth is 
that she might have just been named July because that's when she was born and nobody yeah. took the time to really come up with a better name. Yeah. Yeah. So I, there's I, that. I think I have records. I will look that up for you. It's like, I think that I, just in the excitement of the story, it's like, I didn't, um, I don't know if I have the, her birthday, but I will try to find that. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, was there a, some sort of depression or something going on, a, a lack of resources at the time of their deaths for both of them to die so close to one another. And I know life expectancy certainly wasn't what it is now. That that would be a really interesting story. I think it's a story that needs to be told. I think it's a story that needs to be shared in full color. Um, it's a vibrant story. And I like the fact that you were able to, you're, and I know you're still discovering so much more, but that you've been able to find that this was a consensual relationship, whether, like you said, it was a hookup or whether it was something bigger than that. And the beer, <laughs> the beer drinking, that's really <laughs> the, a really cool anecdote. Yeah, yeah. My, my granny, she also, I remember her telling me when I was little, at that time, when she would tell me the stories, like there was a lot going on with the black pages and this, that, and the other. My, my, my granny was very proud to be black. She had the black pages. She would hire like black lawyers and black doctors first, you know, so she was very proud of being black, but also she acknowledged her German blood and was proud of that too. And now I see now, you know, I always thought it was a little strange, but then I let it go. But in, in, learning i see it but one thing i remember her telling me that it's like as far as racism she would often say like well well poor poor whites they weren't any different they were they were our best friends back then we we'd go borrow a cup of sugar from each other all the time and now i realize she was talking about that family and so like looking at the big picture it seems like maybe because he told me that like some of their family did have slaves and they were wealthy and some of their family didn't you know, and so like uh, whether this was actually the uncle and nephews of the family they worked for, or the actual family, and maybe they lost some of their standing, lost some of their money. He, I, I left out a step. Uh, he, he told me, he said when he first looked him up, he said, "Oh my God!" He said, "I found a Leon that was born the exact right." age and when he was five years old he lived with black people and i was like what and it was like they lived like in a lot where there were black people right next door you know like a few days later we realized that was my family and that they uh, they lived together over 20 years next door to each other that's but, so yeah. interesting that that complexity right of being yeah. mixed race and i think that your grandmother had to make the choice of either, I don't think that, you know, she was celebrating the German part of her, but she was accepting it. Um, yeah. I think that there's a deep complexity there that unless you're part of that history, it's something that I would never understand, but that perhaps I can you know, in some ways empathize with knowing you, knowing what I've learned about slavery, knowing what I know about mixed races being, you know, myself a first generation American and trying to blend into this big melting pot that we have here that, you know, sometimes it, it works really well, sometimes it doesn't. And what an amazing woman your grandmother was to be able to embrace 
everything that she was because you cannot change your makeup. The one thing that you do have control over is how you see it, how you process it, and how you apply it to your situation in the world. So there is, I mean, there's just so much complexity. And I just think it's amazing that she was able to say, I am proud to be Black and I am also German. Yes, yes. And I, and I relate to that myself too, because, you know, my, my father, he's from Italy and he's full-blooded Italian, which actually makes me first-generation Italian or half-first-generation Italian. And it's like, you know, my mother's Black. But my mother had a lot of white blood. We also have a lot of English blood, too, you know, through uh, her father. And it's funny because when I look at my DNA test, you know, it's like I'm 48% Italian, uh, 18% between German and English blood. And then it's like, you know, 27, between 26 and 27% Black. But I'm Black, you know, even though like if you add up my European blood all together, that's more predominant, uh, like 73% on the thing. But then like in America, I'm considered black, you know, and I'm, and I consider myself black because I'm sorry, my cat keeps meowing. Oh no, he's cute. (laughs) Thank you. It's kind of crazy because I almost feel like, um, it almost feels like I am ashamed to say I'm first generation Italian. I feel like, like a, like a fake or, you know, like on both sides, accepting that, you know, it's like um, the black side of things like, oh, she, she's a wannabe. She's just like, oh, she's only, she's ignoring her, you know, black roots. And, you know, and I'm not at all by saying that, saying that I'm half Italian. Uh, on the other side of that, white people will always be seen as white. I've, I've had friends in more than one, three times, three times in my life, I've had a friend that had some Italian blood. And then in two of the cases, it was a, an Italian grandparent, but they looked white. They looked, you know, they dark hair, dark eyed white person. And it's like, they would say all the time, you know, I'm Italian, I'm Italian. And then it's like, everybody would just be like, yeah, they're Italian, even though it was an Italian grandparent and I'm first generation Italian. And then like, if I were to say, yeah, I'm half Italian, they'd be like, no, you're not, you're black, you know, it's, it's weird. It's a weird feeling to not want to say that bothers me, but it does bother me because I'm not allowed to embrace my Italian side because that makes me go against my own. And then also people act like you're fake, you know, or something like that. So it's like, mm-hmm. it gets really weird and kind of dicey to like say you're biracial you really have to get to a place to where you're okay within yourself with it and you don't care what anybody else says but they're still going to say it they're going to you know because i guess it goes back to the 164th law you know if you have 164 ounce of black blood in you then you're black and even though i, I don't even know if that actually still applies in all states i mean it, it is true you know if you have black blood you really are put as black you know it's, it's, it's not fair but then it's just the way things are. And I'm not, I'm not sure if that's more so in America or if everywhere. Uh, I mean, because I'm very proud to be black. I grew up with my mother on the black side of my family. And it's like, so I'm proud to be black. But also it feels good to, I'm close to my father. And it's like, you know, sometimes I can be upset about something. He says, remember, you're Italian, you're Italian. He tells me that, like, you know, like I should know not to be upset about life. I should know <laughs> that I'm Italian. That makes me stronger. I'm like, am I? You know, it's weird. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, there's so many things to be said about that, because we do visually assess people. That's one of the biggest things that guides us through this world is what we see. But we need to be aware that like the saying, you can't judge the book by its cover, there's a lot more inside of a person than just what we see. And so what you had said earlier was you just ha- you just do have to be comfortable with who you are. And I love that your dad tells you don't forget your Italian learn something new from you every single time. I love hearing about your history. I love hearing the excitement in your voice as you're going through this journey, I'm sure that there are so many difficult stories where you to continue to go back if you're even able to. I mean, the, the very fact that human beings in your history are listed as, you know, female one or male two or yeah. no name and no date of birth. And now, you know, that just sadly points directly to the fact that they were seen as objects. They really were seen as property. They were seen as expendable. And yes, this wasn't that long ago. That's what just amazes me. It's like now, you know, uh, Leon and July's uh, daughter, she died a year before I was born. So, I mean, that's how close we are to all this, you know? Wow. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. You know, like I said, when I was sitting next to you and you started talking about how we were going to mold this character that we were working on that you feel an affinity to. I got goosebumps. I mean, just putting the very intimate reality spin into that fictional character that you were contributing was just, you know, like uh-huh. mind blowing. I, um, I did. I felt like I was listening to the ghost of history, just, oh, wow. just laying necessary aspects and just very human aspects to this particular character, which is, you know, another reason why this project is so exciting. We have yeah. such dynamic, talented writers contributing to it. And it's just uh, this depth and this uh, diversity that we're putting in there and just really molding something that is not out there. I think it, it just, we're excited about it. And I know that when it's done, the audience is going to be impressed with it as well. I think it's just a, yes, an it's exciting. Very powerful. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. I'm, I'm just proud to be a part of this. It's like, I, I really am. It's like, and it's like my, my, out of everything I'm working on right now, it's until I start to work on the Leon July thing, whatever I do with that, this is closest to my heart, this project with you guys. I hope that you enjoyed listening to Stephanie's amazing story of not only her history, but her courage in making sense of it and how it applies to her and integrating these historical puzzle pieces into her life and self-discovery and her extraordinary curiosity in pursuing it and connecting with an unknown relative. I mean, wow. And Stephanie, I am wishing you so much luck on this extraordinary journey and sending you so much love. I know that this is going to develop into something wonderful, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Please keep sending your questions and your suggestions to me. I love getting them. They really help me form future shows, future episodes. I 
really love that you're listening. It means the world to me. So please be sure to follow me on the social media channels and the dot com where I always post updates, upcoming topics, recipes, so much more. Don't forget to check the show notes. Anything that we talked about will be in there. And I've got more in the company of friends talks coming up that are super exciting. And I can't wait to share them with you. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the dot com. That's the Queen Trout podcast. T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, elegance, and beauty. Beauty.